0: Luke chapter 23. This, uh, for us as a church family and for many churches, is a cross saturated season. Uh, It's a time when we take up Paul's admonition to make the cross of Christ that which is for us of first importance. And so in this season, we put an emphasis on what matters the most to us as believers, and that is the cross of Jesus. Uh, a couple of months ago, the city of Allentown was uh, sued by one of those groups that doesn't like the fact that in the center of their city seal is a cross. And the lawsuit basically was a demand through the court system that they eliminate the cross from their city seal. And it, it doesn't shock anymore, does it? I mean, if you're surprised by that, you've had your head in the sand. Take it out, clear your eyes out, and open up your eyes and realize that you live in a different world. It was interesting because the city council met last week and voted to retain the cross in their seal, which basically was an act to say, and this was an 8-0 to zero vote that we want the cross in the center of the seal of the city of Bethlehem. All the Christians said, oh, praise God, wonderful, until you read the article. And the article said this, we are voting to keep the cross in the city seal because of its historical symbolic significance. There is a difference between the historical significance of the cross of Christ and the actual significance of the cross of Christ. Uh, The cross is out there as tattoos, the cross is out there as jewelry, it's out there on t-shirts, it's out there in every way possible. It is powerful symbolically. But if it is only powerful to you in a symbolic way, it will never change your life. It is only when you come to realize that the cross of Christ made an actual difference in the lives of people. Jesus on the cross actually accomplished something. And it was not to leave us with the thought of a beautifully selfless man who died as a martyr for a cause. It wasn't to leave us with an example of how to suffer, even though it does that. That was not the reason for which Christ went to Calvary's cross. And there is a danger at some levels of focusing on the cross merely for its shocking symbolic value. A movie came out, I think now about 10 years ago, called The Passion of the Christ. And I'll be honest with you, the focal point of that movie fundamentally was to demonstrate how much Christ endured. Now, I can't vouch for the sincerity of the director's intent with the movie. If I look at his life, I kind of get an idea what I really think his motive was, but I'm not going to judge that. Okay, most people watch the movie were shocked, but I haven't had people walk up to me and say, I trusted in Christ after watching that movie. Why? Because it is possible to gaze upon the unbelievable nature of what Christ went through and never ask the question why. And it is not until you ask the question why that you move from symbolic value of the cross to actual value and difference making in one's life. So if you're here this morning and you have gazed at the cross and you've been amazed at the cross and you're astonished by what a man could endure, I want to challenge you this morning to move beyond that shock and awe to move to a place of grasping the actual rather than the symbolic value so that it will truly transform and change the trajectory of your life forever. Crosses can have sentimental value, but Peter denies that as the meaning of the cross of Christ. He says in 1 Peter 1.18, For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed from your wicked way of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. This morning I ask you this question. Does the cross have actual value for you? Does it have actual value? value that challenges and transforms your heart and your life. This morning, I want us to answer that question by looking at the text before us, Luke 23, beginning in verse 26. And I want to do it by looking at the various perspectives that are presented in this text, because we're going to see five or six different individuals or groups of people who gaze upon the cross and are impacted by it in different ways. And so let's look through this real quickly. The first name that comes up in this text, and it's really the context previous to my text, it's the name Barabbas. I have pondered on Barabbas, thought about Barabbas. I realized that I don't have any friends named Barabbas. He's an interesting individual, isn't he? Because Jesus is being condemned, and the crowd is saying, give us Barabbas, you take Jesus. And there is this exchange. There is... Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist, he is a rebel against the Roman Empire. And being a rebel against the Roman Empire meant you got death. That was your sentence. He was in captivity, bound for death. But the people had a pattern once a year. They could plead that Pilate, the governor, the representative of the Roman governor, could release one prisoner to the people of Israel. And Jesus is on the table. Jesus has been through the night of judgments, the night of the court cases. He has now been condemned to death. or just coming down to that point. And as Pilate gets up and the three instances, declares the innocence of Jesus, the crowd cries out, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Meaning this, condemn the innocent man and give us the guilty man. Shocking, but that's the way it happened. And so I think of Barabbas, and I think he was released the guilty man, jailed for insurrection. Jesus was crucified, charged with what? Insurrection. And you remember in Luke 22, when Judas comes and betrays Christ, and the Roman soldiers have come to take him, along with the the chief priests and the Pharisees, Jesus says, are you arresting me for insurrection? I mean, is this a joke? Where could you possibly come up with the conclusion that I'm here to overthrow the Roman government? And so he is innocent of that charge, but he is taken to the cross as one guilty of that charge. Here's the picture in my mind, simply, one of substitution. See, in the cross, a, a guilty man goes free and an innocent man dies in his place. That's your first indication of what this text is all about. It's all about substitution. It's all about someone who stands in someone else's place, takes the hit they deserve, they go free. And that is the essence or seed, if you will, of the gospel. Second person that comes up in the text is verse 26. It says, as they led Jesus away, now beaten, flogged, shredded by the brutality of the night before, sleepless. They place a cross upon him. And he he is literally incapable of carrying the burden. He is that denigrated from what he has experienced from my sin. That they have to grab a man named Simon the Cyrene from an area called Tripoli who has come quite a distance to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. They grab him out of the blue. We don't know any significance to this man whatsoever, except that he comes and joins as the representative of humanity in this crosswork of Christ. That's all we really know about him. I wonder what his story was like. When he went home and recounted the Passover that he would never forget along with his two sons, Rufus and Alexander. He is like one who shares in the journey of Christ. And folks, bottom line of the gospel is you need to participate in the significance of a Christ on the cross endured for you. And I see Simon just as a bit of a a hint of that. In verse 27 to 31, I see this crowd, and it's an interesting picture. Verse 27, it says a number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And we know that Mary and some of the others were part of that crowd. And they seem to be the the element of the crowd that is is kind of focused upon in this text. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. James a few weeks ago shared this statement. Don't pity Jesus. Praise him. And here is the, the underpinning of that statement. Jesus is saying, don't pity me. I've come for a purpose. I've come for your benefit. And then he, he gives kind of a, if you will, a little archaic type of a statement after, after making a, 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 a strong statement about the kind of pain that is going to come on the city of Jerusalem, verse 30. He says, they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us, literally kill us. For if men do these things when the tree is green... What will happen when it is dry? And there's this archaic picture of a judgment that's coming to the people who have rejected Christ. If you study history, you know the significance of that is in AD 70. The Romans will utterly obliterate the city of Jerusalem in a way that is unprecedented in its destruction and unprecedented in the pain of those who experience that judgment of God on the city of Jerusalem. What does Jesus say? Don't don't weep for me. My death has a substantial purpose. The judgment that I have come to bear for you will fall on you if you reject me. That is the shocking and strong aspect of this text. I think you could state it something like this. If God has not spared his son suffering, how much worse will it be for the guilty city? or for the one that that knows about Christ but refuses to trust Christ because of a personal declaration of independence and insurrection. I want life on my terms. Jesus says, don't pity me. My death has a purpose, and Father is going to redeem me from this death. Don't pity me. Folks, if you're here this morning, in this there is a call. Trust the Savior who stood on the cross to bear your judgment so that you never would have to. Trust him. Verse 32 to 34, I think, leads us to the heart of this text. The Bible says two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And The word criminals here, simply, if you break it down in the original language, it simply means evil workers or evil doers. They were people by the culture counted as nothing worthy of death to be eliminated. They were a scourge on the culture. Humanly speaking, rightfully rejected. But I want, to wa- I want you to watch the flow of this text. They were to the public good for nothings. They were people that didn't register on the scale of those for whom people had concern or care. And, then, and we'll come back to them in just one moment. And then in verse 35 to 38, the people stood watching and the rulers even scorned at him. They taunted Christ. They said he saved others. Let him save himself. If you go to the book of Matthew, he trusted in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him, quoting from Psalm 22. They taunted him with the... If you're the Messiah, save yourself. Come down from that cross. Show your true color. Mockery, brutality, sarcasm, and slander. You see, the Pharisees had a belief. Here was their belief. God saves the righteous, which would be us. And Jesus, if you're the righteous, let God act to save you. Or save yourself if you're the Messiah. That was the the setup of this text. And so there's here a fulfillment of Psalm 22, 7 through 9, where there is watching, staring, and sneering, taunting. And then verse 37, the soldiers are mentioned briefly. And these, I believe, are simply people that are doing life. Verse 36, the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. They're just repeating what everybody's saying. This for them is another routine day at work where their job is to take criminals and put them to death in honor of the Roman Empire. That's what they did. And the text fascinatingly says, I believe it's in verse 34, the second half of the verse. It says, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Every crucifixion, the Romans would cast dice to see who gets the clothing of the individual. That was the value of clothing in that setting. So they would tell you, it's just a routine day for them. But they get caught up in this taunting at Christ. Just doing life. The taunt is, save yourself. The truth is that Jesus Christ could only save others by losing his life. In saving himself himself. He would damn humanity in giving himself in our place on the cross he makes the way for our salvation and john twelve twenty seven went through the center men's Bible study a few weeks ago. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, "My soul is troubled why proximity of the cross in John twelve you are six days away from the cross and Jesus looks at his disciples and says, "My soul is troubled by what is coming by your loss of me and by the suffering that I have to go through and then he provokes this question with the disciples. He says, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Give me a shortcut, get me out. And he's tempted to pray that. And in the garden, he actually submits that request to God. But he says, no, for this reason, I came into the world. To pursue rebels. To pursue sinners who deserve what I'm bearing on the cross. This is the heart of Christ. Verses 38 and 39, you find, or 39, you find one of the criminals who hung there, hurled insults at him. Here's what he says. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. So what kind of a plea is that? You know, if you help yourself, you also help me. He's he's the kind of guy that wants to domesticate Jesus and make Jesus a helper not a savior. You ever seen that? Have you ever done that? I want Jesus to help me. I don't want to submit to him and follow him. I just want him to help me out of my problem. I want a Jesus who's like a genie who I can give out three wishes to and he'll have my beck and call, do what I want, and I can live life like I want to. There's no brokenness on this man's part. He's not asking for what he deserves. He's asking for what he wants. Which leads us to the last observer of the cross, a man responding to the Savior. Would you follow this with me? Verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him, the mocking criminal. So something something about this series of hours on the cross and watching Jesus and seeing him cry out in verse 34, Father, forgive them. This guy is stunned. What kind of a man looks at those who are crucifying him and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Probably targeting the Roman soldiers as the objects of his affection. Father, forgive them. Folks, listen. Jesus said to us, pray for your enemies. And Jesus did it. In this most excruciating moment in his crucifixion, he pleads for their forgiveness. Now, I want you to think about this in the series of a couple questions. This thief, what did he realize about himself? Okay, what, what, what kind of, in this process of crucifixion next to Jesus, what settled into his psyche? What became the convicting thought on his mind? And I want you to think about this. Look what he says. He says, don't you fear God since we are under the same sentence? He's dying and we're dying. Where do you get off on mocking him? There's almost a disgust or a despair in his statement. And then he says in verse 41, and this is how you move towards Christ, folks. This is the move towards Christ that will genuinely change your life. He says, we are punished justly. Criminal number one to criminal number two. We're getting what we deserve. This man, listen to what he says. We are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And here's the sense I get. They stood at the trial. They heard Pilate three times say, no fault. They knew that Herod had declared him innocent, but that the crowd demanded his death. And he knew that hanging beside him was a man who should not be there, but was there of his own accord, if you understand the full gospel. Jesus said to Pilate, hey, time out, buddy. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. That was in response to Pilate saying, you know what, Jesus, I can give you freedom or I can take away your freedom. Time out, buddy. If I wanted to, I could call legions of angels to wipe out your weakness. But for this reason, I came into the world. No one takes my life. I give my life. And all of this is settling into the heart of this convicted criminal who is facing death. I thought about six months ago, I watched the movie Gravity. And there's a, there's a phrase in that movie that, that captured my attention. It's when Sandra Bullock, who's the actor of the the one who's now lost in space, still has communication with NASA. And she she makes this statement. She says, kind of coming to the grips with reality of what's about to happen. She says, I know we're all going to die. But I'm going to die today. Let that sink in. You guys, all of us, we live in a world of people that know they're going to die. This man knew he was going to die today. And the reality of that settled in, convicted him. We're here. We deserve to be here. We're getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. He is utterly innocent, but dying as a guilty man. And the gospel starts to saturate, to flow down to him. And notice what he does. Notice what he does. Then he said, so he turns from the other criminal. Now he fixes his gaze on Jesus. And here is the plea that brings redemption and what i want you to notice is there's not this extended prayer that most of us teach people there's a heart change that god brings not a sermon a heart change that god by the spirit brings and this man confesses trust in christ here's what he says he says lord from a guilty man deserving of death and folks that is the only position from which you can ever truly trust christ When you realize that you are dead without him. Maybe not today, but at some point in the future, your day is coming. Here's what he says. Lord, remember me when you come in what? Your kingdom. Who does he realize is hanging beside him? The king of kings and Lord of lords. So the accusation written over Christ that says, King of the Jews, this criminal is looking at that and saying, yeah. And he cries out to this great king, remember me when you come in your kingdom, which means what? He had a sense of the resurrection of Christ. He had a sense of the power of Christ. He had a sense of what Christ's cross work was doing for him. He saw it in my place. Folks, listen, this text on two occasions says that Jesus was led out. Not alone. He was led out with evildoers, with two criminals, right? And when it it talks about the crucifixion, it says, there they crucified him with two criminals. If you go back two chapters, I believe it is, or one chapter back, here's what Luke quotes from Isaiah. Luke quotes from Isaiah 53, 12, and says this. He was numbered with transgressors right? He was numbered with. The, the, the rap on Jesus was what? He was the friend of sinners. On the cross, it goes deeper. He is led out with criminals. He is crucified with criminals. He is numbered with, which if you pull on that and say, what does that mean that he's numbered with transgressions? It means this. He is counted as, on the cross, a transgressor for my sin and yours. And when that thought settles in, it will bring you freedom from the consequences of your sin. He was pierced for your transgressions. All that he endured is all that I deserve. And he stood in my place and bore the total consequence of my sin in his body on the tree. Psalm 22 puts it this way. Written a thousand years before. The psalmist says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They herald insult to me, shaking their heads. That's this text. This text written a thousand years before. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey. Open their mouths wide against me. He saved others. Let him save himself. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart Melts like wax within me, the congestive heart fill of the cross of Christ on the cross. My strength is dried up like a clay pot. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Written a thousand years before Christ comes. The thief on the cross sees that and it clicks. Or as one writer says, the penny drops. As he looked at Christ, he saw a savior. He didn't see a symbolic individual. He didn't see a heroic example of suffering. He saw a savior who was King of kings and Lord of Lords. Isaiah 53 would put it this way: He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace fell on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep go astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And when that comes to light for this thief on the cross, what does he do? He cries out and says, Lord, remember me. And what I want you to notice is absent from the thief on the cross because he does not have opportunity. He makes no promises of reformation. He makes no promises of living a clean life. He throws himself on the mercy of Christ and can make no contribution to what he desperately needs, and that is forgiveness. There is no hint of religion in this man. He is a broken sinner in need of a Savior. And in Christ, he finds just that. What did he receive? His request is vague Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus' answer is precise. Listen to what he says to him today. Not generally sometime in the future. Today, you, sinner seeing your sin and seeing a Savior you will be with me in paradise. Folks, that is the most amazing statement. Jesus takes a wretch on the cross and transforms him into a son of God. What could he do? What could he offer? What could he try? Nothing. I'm going to die today. And he cries out and experiences a grace that is utterly amazing. An immediate Conscious experience of Christ is the blessing of those who trust in him as Lord and Savior. And that is what this man got. Now, what is that? In the context of the Gospel of Luke, that is the great reversal. If you were the Pharisees standing there and heard this discussion, what would your response be? Folks, can we be honest? This is what we call the irritating grace of God. Right? It's why many of us will never seek sinners. We'll see good candidates for the gospel. But we will never drift into the dregs of life. And rescue the perishing. Because we have a weak cross. That has not really changed our mind after changing our heart. You see when you look at this text. Jesus said, hey, what you saw me do, do it. Do it. And he does it here. He reaches to the lowest of the low to say there is hope for anyone. So that no matter where you are, no matter what is haunting you, no matter what you've done, no matter what addiction you are battling with, look to the cross of Christ. And when you see him for who he really is and you see yourself as you really are. I don't care what people say about you. What matters is God's assessment. By God's standard, I'm a broken sinner in need of a savior. Well, that's the kind of people that Jesus loves. And when he saves them, it irritates religious people. Why? Because religious people can't help this criminal. They can't help a man dying guilty in his sin. There is no hope for him in the religious world. He can't do penance. He can't do religious activity. He can't become a singer of praises to God. He can offer nothing. That's because your salvation is not a cooperative endeavor. Your sanctification is kind of a cooperative endeavor. But your salvation is not a cooperative endeavor. You make no contribution. The sad thing for Christians is that as they get along in their Christian life, they begin to believe that they make a contribution to their salvation. And worry and anxiety seizes them up. Because they forget that their position in Christ is solely because of the cross. This man had a date with Jesus. Today. Today. From your death as a guilty sinner to paradise as a redeemed son of God. Folks, that is Christian hope. And if that settles into your heart, it will transform you and change you from the inside out. And you will become a person like Jesus who lives to seek and to save that which is lost by the redeeming work of Christ and its proclamation. Folks, do you understand why the Apostle Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who will believe. Romans 10.13 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved whoever. Think of your list of people. Think of your list of impossibles. Think of your list of people that you, you be honest, you've written them off because your God is too small. You've written them off because your Savior is too weak, though mighty to save. This man believed that a plea to Christ, innocently dying in his place, bearing his sin, could actually set him free and it changed not his life that was over it changed his eternity and this is the great reversal isn't it the Pharisees reject him and Jesus says okay judgment's coming and you had a chance in this case the first the highers become the lowers and the lowest becomes the highest folks when you can see yourself as the lowest you can become a son of god a daughter of god and so can anyone you know do you have faith to believe that the cross of christ proclaimed is the power of god to transform the person in your life that you simply find irritating aggravating do you think he can save the enemies that come against this country do you have a savior that good Do you pray for the people you fear? Do I? Do you believe he can save? The thief on the cross believed he could. And I love the other character at the end of this. It's the Roman soldier. Who at the end says, we just killed a righteous man. But what is he? He's a Gentile. So now what do you have? Now you have Gentiles and criminals. Evildoers swept into the kingdom of God. I'm sure the Pharisees stood there and said, this grace is amazing and beautiful. I know they, they, folks, I'm going to tell you something. Religious people in your life hate the gospel that says that people who have been reckless have the equal chance to a hope of heaven with God forever that they have. They don't like it. You understand what I'm saying? Religion can't offer hope to a dying criminal. He can't get down and give 20. He can't get on the treadmill of spiritual performance and crank out righteousness. He's got no time. It's done. But Jesus looks at him and says, redeemed today, done. And on the cross, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Which in other gospels is stated in something like this. It's done. It's done. Sin is paid for. There is hope for sinners, for everyone who believes. But folks, the struggle with that kind of belief is you have to come to a very raw recognition of who you are. A painful recognition that I am a sinner who rebels against God. I'm, who's the insurrectionist? Not Jesus. It's me. That starts young. These little guys here. I've seen you with your parents. I've seen some of you. You, know, you get that little tood. And when you grow up, they call it attitude, okay? At your age, it's a tude. But we, we all wrestle with this. We want to control our own destiny. We want to control our own future. And it's just our sinfulness starting to bubble up. And when you're adolescence, you'll become more annoying. And then when you get married, you become like the children we always wanted. Okay, <laughs> It's kind of the way it is, Right? But for everyone, there's this this struggle with this desire for independence and to want to rule my life. That's the essence of sin. I want it my way. It's mine. I do it. And we destroy our lives. And for the person who has destroyed their life, there is one who can reconstruct your life. There is one who can transform you. The Apostle Paul said it this way, his testimony, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul says, my hope is the hope of the thief on the cross. What does Paul say about himself? I was the chiefest of sinners. Rebel, number one, redeemed. Redeemed. You don't have to be that bad as a thief on the cross to come to Christ. We're all in the same boat. The wages of sin is death, all of it. If you break one of the commandments, James says, you've broken them all. You're a guilty sinner in need of redemption. You're a rebel in need of a savior. You're a rebel in need of someone who can confront your independent spirit and rescue you by his shed blood on the cross. The thief on the cross could not reform his life. He could not try harder. He couldn't go to church. He couldn't make amends for his wrongs. He was in a serious predicament deserving of judgment and death with no time left on the clock of life. And the truth is that God does not want, he does not need your righteousness, he doesn't need your cooperation, he doesn't need your religion, he doesn't need your reformation, he doesn't need your recovery. Religion offers no real hope to rebels, to moral failures, criminals and evildoers. It can only offer the burden of righteous performance that is too heavy to and drowns people in a sea of guilt and despair. What God wants from his children what God wants from sinners is a repentant heart leaning on the work of Christ so that he is glorified, not you. In the end, salvation and rescue is about him. It is not the result of a combination of your effort and his to get you free, but it is him declaring you actually, not symbolically, but actually and factually free, based on, solely upon what he has done for you in his son on the cross to which you make no contribution. Why does he do it that way? So there will be no Pharisees left. That's why. So that when you and I get to heaven, I will never meet anyone who says, oh, what did you do to get here? None. Christ alone. In Revelation Chapter five, heaven sings a song and it's called a new song. And you know it, I just got to remind you of it. And it's the difference between a symbolic view of the cross and an actual view of the cross. It's the difference between what the cross symbolizes and what it actually accomplishes for repenting sinners. It says they sang a new song You, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were crucified, slain, and with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You know what, folks, that says? That says on the cross, Jesus did not symbolize something. He actually did something. He purchased people from sin by his shed blood And makes them sons and daughters of God. So we say to the evil one who attempts to drown in despair. We say when Satan tempts me to despair. And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there. Who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless savior died. My sinful soul is counted clean. And God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Folks, that is an actual difference that the cross will make in your life. I encourage you this week, this cross-saturated week, to read through the Gospels. Read Psalm 22. It challenge the teenagers. Read Psalm 22. Read Isaiah 53 in your place. By his stripes, we are healed. Read the story of your redemption and rejoice in a great Savior. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the world we live in, all the cities we live in, I, I know this is a loaded statement, but just bear with the illustration. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Lehigh County, city of Allentown, Adopted a seal that doesn't have historical significance, but actual significance. Would that not be cool? We're going to keep it there because it actually means something. It's not just that some people who came here and settled in this area were Moravians. Okay, they were Christians from overseas. Okay, and that's what happened. We're not acknowledging that. Oh, no. We're acknowledging that someone actually did something on that cross and offers hope and transformation for our community. That's the message that would be glorious. So when you leave today and you go into this week and you encounter someone who is criminal-like, who is broken, who's done stupid, will you magnify their guilt or will you magnify the one who hung in their place? When you wrestle with your own guilt and shame, your own failure, your own blow up at your mate, your own foolishness and anger towards your kids, will you magnify your sin and sit there in despair in a puddle? Or you will exalt the cross of Christ, look through the eyes of a broken thief and say, Jesus, remember me, forgive me, change me actually and for your glory folks there is hope for everyone here this morning if you've never trusted him i want to encourage you this morning maybe maybe god has challenged your heart maybe at the end of the service you need to walk up front and say you know what today pastor tim i'm the thief who is seeing jesus aright and clear and i want to lay hold of him today by faith i'm not going to give you a prayer to pray if you come on, I'm going to assume that God has done something in your heart. And I would just pray with gratitude over you this morning. Doug, we pray with gratitude over you this morning. Cry out to Jesus. He is mighty to save. Father.